Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're proud to be a community partner with Forward Radio WFMP 106.5. If you're not picking up our show on your radio, you can live stream us and just go to forwardradio.org. The views and opinions expressed here on single-payer radio are those of the speakers and not the station. We're recording today's program June 22nd, or 2021. (laughs) (laughs) And just a heads up for folks uh, who are supporters or just want to learn more about Kentuckians for single-payer health care and what is single-payer, the group is sponsoring a rally in March for improved Medicare for all. That's Saturday, July 24th at 11 a.m. We'll start at the Mazzoli Federal Building there at uh, 600 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Place. We'll begin there. We'll do uh, a march and a caravan. We'll have speakers, refreshments, socialize, and we'll be celebrating Medicare's 56th birthday. So we encourage folks to come on out. Now, Dr. Mike Flynn, Dr. Gene Shively. Uh, Thank Mark. Uh, Let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any uh, comments that I make uh, represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. My comments do not represent Taylor Regional Hospital nor the Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. Uh, We have a very special guest today. Uh, Ann Hagen Grigsby is the CEO of the Parc Duval Community Health Center, and she is going to explain to us all of the remarkable things that go on uh, in that 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 institution and all of its different locations. So, Anne, thank you again for joining us. We we look forward to the discussions, uh, as we've done with uh, with our previous guests. We're going to give you an opportunity to make whatever comments you'd like to make <clears throat> about our topic, which is the Park Duval Community Health Centers, and then the conversation will begin. So the floor is yours for as long as you'd like. Well, first of all, I have to say that any comments that I make that are not about Park Duval Community Health Center are the opinions of Ann Hagen Grigsby and not the opinions of Park Duval Community Health Center and staff or board of directors. So I have to do my disclaimer as well. Um, But um, I'm excited to be able to be on your show today. This is um, an amazing opportunity because people do not know a lot of the things that we are involved in here in various parts of Kentucky. So Park Duval Community Health Center, we are the oldest federally qualified health center in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And we started back in 1968 Funding was secured by Dr. Harvey Sloan, who was an Appalachian physician who later became mayor of Louisville. But he's the one who started the Park Duval Community Health Center because he heard about this demonstration project that was going on in Mount Bayou, Mississippi. And he felt like Kentucky needed the same kind of 
access to quality health care that was affordable. Harvey Sloan was an interesting guy. I remember him. <clears throat> he was probably one of the best squash players in Louisville. So uh, <laughs> let me let me ask you to give us an idea of of how how much how many different activities you have going on in the various different locations in and around Louisville. Oh my goodness! Okay, we might have to take more than an hour. That's all. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Okay, Parkyball Health Center, people remember us, the, they remember the site in the Parkyball neighborhood. Everyone thinks of Parkyball as being that one location. Um, on, it's on 3050 Wilson, 3015 Wilson Avenue um, in the west end of Louisville, Kentucky, in the Parkyball neighborhood. But that's where the original site was. The original building doesn't exist any longer. It was part of subsidized housing. Um, that was owned by Housing Authority of Louisville and leased the Park to Ball. But when Housing Authority of Louisville earned a Hope Six grant to renovate the, the neighborhood here in Park to Ball and turn it from all subsidized housing to mixed income housing, including subsidized housing, we did not have a place to go. So I was very fortunate to be able to find some funding um, from the federal government through the um, assistance of uh, then Congresswoman Ann Northup to have a special direct appropriation to build this new building on Wilson Avenue. And then we also got new furnishings and equipment. And so it's a beautiful site. And so people look and they are surprised and look at the small hospital is what it looks like. But then we also have a site at 15th and West Broadway. It's on the corner of, it's right on the corner of 15th and West Broadway across from a fifth third bank. And a lot of people don't know that's our site either. That's Russell Neighborhood Health Center. And then we have a site in Hikes Point. And that's called, it's actually called Park Development Newburgh Health Center. And that's because it used to actually be located in the Newburgh neighborhood on Exeter Avenue. But um, when the city of Louisville needed the space we were in for a neighborhood place, we had to move and we had to move fairly quickly. So I was able to find a space in a strip mall on, in Bardstown Square. So that's where our, our clinic that's called Newburgh is currently located. And then we have one in Henry County and that's the Henry County Community Health Center. It's our newest one. It's co-located with the Henry County Health Department in Newcastle, Kentucky on 75 Park Road. And we have part of the building and the health department owns the rest and we lease that space. And then we have a building in Taylorsville as well. Um, that one's a big brand new facility as well. It was um, a really tiny clinic in the eighties. We, we only had four exam rooms and two dental operatories. Um, it, it was in a county just like Henry County that does not have a hospital. And um, we were the primary source for primary care for individuals who were low income. And it was, it just was too small to meet our needs. So we built a new center on Taylorsville Road across from the Spencer County High School. That's a beautifully appointed facility. And I think it's the first new commercial construction in Taylorsville in 20 years. And then we also have two school-based clinics. One's in Central High School up in the third floor, 
and staff, students, and faculty can um, use that clinical that clinic there in Central High School. And then we have one in PRP High School as well that does the same. Um, we're trying to make sure that healthcare is accessible, affordable, and that people don't have excuses um, why they can't get healthcare when they need it. Now, didn't you tell us a little earlier about <clears throat> a, a mobile dental uh, van or, or something that would, how, how does, how does that work? Uh, you pull up into the front of somebody's house and knock on the door and ask if they want their teeth cleaned. <laughs> yeah, there's a, you know, a Dr. Quad Watson, he's a dentist who has a company called Care Mobile. Um, we asked him to come on board as our um, part-time dental director to help us learn how to develop a mobile dental practice. Because actually in Henry County, there is no practicing dentist in that county. There are dentists that live in Henry County, but there isn't a practice in Dental County. If there is now, I don't know about it, but um, we had to do a needs assessment to explain needs. So um, when we show, when we were able to tell them that we could provide dental services on a van, we, it looks just like a dental office inside, x-ray, water, computers, everything that you would have in a regular dental office, lights, um, we can just drive the van out to Henry County and park it in the health department's parking lot. It has its own generator too. So we don't even have to use their electricity. And then people can call and make appointments to see the dentist or the dental hygienist on the dental van. Um, we also take it over to Central High School and to PRP because the clinics in both of the schools are too small to have a dental operatory. So we decided that we could provide dental care on site by pulling up into the parking lot at either of the schools. So they have a schedule that they follow each week and provide dental care at PRP, Central, and Henry County. Now, are these services provided free or are there some sort of means testing charges? Or how does that work? Yeah, it's, it's not free. Uh, you know, I have to, a lot of people um, think that we're a free clinic. We are not a free clinic. Um, we're a federally qualified health center. We're also a 501c3 nonprofit. And everyone says, oh, well, because you get federal money, you all have lots of money. Actually, the federal dollars we get don't even pay all of our clinical staff salaries, and we have to earn the rest. So for individuals, we do means testing using the federal poverty guidelines that come out every February. And individuals who are 200% of poverty or lower are eligible for sliding fee scales. And our sliding fee scale is you know, very modest. So a patient could pay as little as $20 for a doctor's visit if they're say at 100% of poverty, which would mean a family of four would make about $26,400 a year. I believe that's correct. And then, you know, at 200% of poverty, they might pay up to $80 for a visit, but that would be a family of four making $52,400. So it's, um, you know, everyone who comes into a friendly qualified health center, whether they want to be on sliding scale or not, have to give proof of income whether you're low income or not, because it's a federal requirement. But we use that to determine how much they pay. So that person who, who's eligible, let's say a $20 visit, 
That includes their lab and their x-ray, and we don't balance bill them. It does not cover their medications, though. Uh, has, has Medicaid expansion helped you financially? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you cannot believe the difference. Before Medicaid expansion, most of our patients were uninsured. Most of them were very low income. Right now, about 65% are at 100% of poverty or lower. So that patient who would, uh, uh, back in those days, before 2012, would pay maybe $10 for an office visit. And that included their laboratory and their x-ray. And that was all we would get. So we did not have a lot of resources. We did not have profits or reserves. We kind of, I probably shouldn't say this, but we did rob Peter and pay Paul. But we made sure that we still were able to provide quality health care. Um, yeah. When Medicaid, when Affordable Care Act started, all of a sudden, people who were not insured had insurance. And Medicaid expansion meant that males who were not eligible for Medicaid could now get care. So now we have, all, we have about, I guess, 45% of our patients are Medicaid patients. And because we're a federally qualified health center, we don't get the standard Medicaid rate that like a primary care office might have as a federally qualified health center. We get a prospective payment system rate, which enables us to do all the other stuff we do for free. Are you able to... Care, care, get, collect your expenses now with expanded Medicaid? With ex Medicaid is our primary source of revenue. Yes, we not only cover our expenses, but we have reserves. So that building in Taylorsville that I mentioned that we just that we built um, for that site to go from a, four, a small four clinic, four operatory office to a, a large 10,000 square foot clinic site um, we used our reserves to pay for that and did not have to ask for any federal funds. You know, you hear the word, no, you know, the cliche, no margin, no mission. That's very true. Um, I do what we're expected to do, which is provide access for all, regardless of ability to pay, if we did not have the PPS rate structured the way it is and use that to pay for all the other services that we provide. Uh, what about Obamacare, the expansion of Obamacare? Has that helped you also? That did, yes. That, that definitely did. Um, that, was, that meant that there were individuals who, you know, previously might not have ever had insurance who now actually have access to care. And not just to primary care, but they could actually go to see a specialist if they needed to. Um, before that, if someone needed a specialist, we would have to kind of call and beg someone to see them because they didn't have insurance to cover their care. They didn't have money to pay for it. So, if uh, you had your wish and uh, uh, for the future of healthcare in this country, uh, what would you like to see happen so that everyone could get uh, basic care in, in the United States? I'd like to see a universal health care plan of some type where anybody on U.S. soil, whether they were actually U.S. citizens or, but if they were on U.S. soil, they would have access to care. 
Um, Medicare for all would work. We can have, you know, we look at other countries around the world that have universal health care plans, like in Canada and in London. My son-in-law is from London and he, he lives here and he just does not understand our health care system and why it operates the way it does. Well, so, we, don't, we don't either. That's why, that's why we're doing this. <laughs> I understand it. It's about making lots of money. Yes, it's profits before people. Profits before people. Right. And let's go back to basics here. And if you can give our listeners a sense of uh, the extent, the details of the the services you provide. So one, there's health care. And the details of that is that pediatrics, uh, you know, primary care gynecology uh are there some mental health services uh do you have addiction issues in there you've told us a little bit about the dental but trying to give kind of give our listeners an overview of the 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 extent of the the services that are provided in those different facilities i'm glad to do so we're we're a primary care center um the state no longer licensed federally qualified health centers like us as primary care license centers. They stopped that a couple of years ago. I think it was because they didn't have enough people to come out and survey us. But we, we do have um, care. We have primary care for adults. We have pediatrics. We have women's health and OBGYN services. We have um, dental services. We have behavioral health and substance use disorder services. Um, we have about 20,000 patients, and we had over about last year over 62,000, almost 62,500 medical visits, 11,800 dental visits, almost 10,000 mental health visits, almost 3,500 or more substance use visits, and then enabling visits. We had, um, and people say, well, what's enabling services? That means a patient who walks in our door. Yes, we can see them and give them their medications because we have 340B pharmacies on site where we get federal discounts on our, the cost of the pharmaceuticals. We pass that discount on to the patient. So some, if a patient has multiple uh, medications that they can, may not be able to afford at a retail pharmacy, if they are our patient, they can get it through our 340B pharmacy. Our 340B pharmacy, not only can you pick up your pharmaceuticals at the pharmacy at the main site at Wilson, but we deliver the pharmaceuticals to all satellite sites, and we have a pharmacy delivery van that will take pharmaceuticals to the patient's home as well. We also have um, transportation vans. Some people have do not have access to transportation, and sometimes they have to, in Louisville, ride TARC long distances to get to us, to any of our sites, because we serve almost every zip code in Jefferson County, plus Anderson, Nelson, Bullitt, Henry, Spencer, Taylor, um, Shelby, Trimble County as well. So um, we have transportation vans that will pick a patient up and bring them to their appointment and take them home free of charge. Um, We don't have that for our satellite sites, but one of the things that I'm plan to do with the multi-millions of dollars we got for, for COVID from the um, American Rescue Plan Act is to buy a, a, an additional van for our Taylorsville site and a van for our Newburgh site in order to make sure the patients in those areas 
have access to care and don't and are not having a problem with transportation. Um, we also have a CLIA certified laboratory. Most clinics have wave tested labs with just basic laboratory. Ours is actually a moderate complexity lab, just like a hospital lab. Um, our laboratory is run by Dr. Ali Fogri, and we're only one of two multidisciplinary labs in the Commonwealth of Kentucky that gets 100% on their CLIA um, surveys every year. And we do genetic testing, we do all antibody testing, we do STD testing, we do almost any panel that any primary care doctor would want. We do it in-house because most of our patients could not afford to have it done at Quest and LabCorp. And if we send it to a Quest or LabCorp and the patient can't afford it, we have to pay for it out of our operating expenses, our operating budget. So it makes um, sense for me to do it in-house. We have our own x-ray department. You know, you don't have to go two or three places, come to see your doctor and then go somewhere else and get an x-ray. We have x-ray in the building. So you can see your physician, think you need to have an x-ray, then, you know, you can just go into the x-ray room and get our wonderful, an x-ray from our x-ray tech. And we have radiologists who do telehealth. We don't have a radiologist on staff anymore. But like a week, a month ago about when I fell and I think I thought I broke my hand. I mean, it, I have a little fracture in it but I was able to go see a doctor here and then get a referral right into our x-ray department, let them x-ray my hand, and then immediately get the results back to my clinical provider within less than 15 minutes. Well, good. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about, uh, or let's get you to talk a little bit more about this kind of networking situation. Suppose you have uh, someone who comes in uh, and needs to see a cardiologist or someone is, needs to see a surgeon, or in your case, if you had actually broken your hand and you needed to go see a hand surgeon or an orthopod, what sort of networking arrangements do you, do you have either with U of L or Norton's or Baptist to, to, you know, to get these referrals and consultations taken care of? Well, first of all, we have a referral department and our referral department makes all of our referrals to specialists, regardless of the type. Now, um, most of the contracts we have with UofL Hospital, for example, Norton's Hospital also, they have their own charity care programs. So our patients who cannot afford care or don't have insurance, because that's almost 30% of my patient population who still are uninsured, um, we can make arrangements for them to have the care they need at one of the hospitals. The problem is um, there is not as much money in what used to be called the Quality and Charity Care Trust. So ones who are totally uninsured, it's a little bit of a challenge for us to find specialty care or surgery care. And um, we do have a cardiologist who volunteers on site at our Russell Neighborhood Health Center Clinic. He works for Baptist Hospital, but he has a a program called um, Have a Heart. His name is Dr. Imburgia. And so he will see our patients who are low income. Um, and they have actually not only had cardiology treatment, but also testing and some cases surgery at low cost or no cost. 
um, it's, it's still a challenge for patients who are uninsured or those who are underinsured to get specialty care. Uh, what percentage would you estimate of the of, of their patients that come in fall into those two categories of being uninsured or underinsured? Um, our uninsured, we have right now, we're uninsured population is about 28.3% of our, our patient population. Okay. And then underinsured, that's a pretty large number, but I don't know what that is because we don't track that as much. But a lot of time patients one insurance, but when they're low income, they'll pay for the the most inexpensive plan they can get. That so doesn't cover high deductibles, yeah. and they may have limited coverage. Let, let me let me ask you a question. Uh, do you have volunteers uh, like uh, residents and uh, medical students from U of L that come down and work in your clinic? Um, they, they don't actually work in our clinic, but we have um, a collaborative relationship with the University of Louisville and the Northwest Area Health Education Center. That's a federally funded project that U of L has that um, provides clinical rotation opportunities for students, not only in Jefferson County, but throughout the state. There are about nine regional area health education center um, offices all throughout Kentucky. And the one that we work with in the Northwest Area Health Education Center, they have an um, office at Family Health Center, and then they have an office here at Park Duval. Um, they coordinate all of our clinical rotations, and the students don't just come from U of L or U of K. You know, they come from Bellarmine and Spalding and Vanderbilt and MIT and you know Frontier Nursing and Massachusetts anywhere anywhere that needs a clinical rotation they can come on site if we have a clinical provider who can be a preceptor for them. So we get medical students and dental students and nursing students and nurse practitioner students. Um, we have psychiatry residents who come three days, who are here. We have three different ones who are here three days a week, I believe, in our behavioral health department. Because um, I don't have a psychiatrist on staff right now. I have psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners and licensed clinical social workers, and then U of L sends their psychiatric residents and are attending to see our patients in behavioral health. One of the earlier programs we did, uh, in fact, it was the last one we did, we had a physician and a nurse practitioner from the Family Health Center at Phoenix, which is next to the St. John Center. Mm -hmm. And we did an entire program on the medical health, the health problems of the homeless. Yes. Is that much of an issue that you deal with that as well? Or is that? You know, we do, but it's you know? not as much as Family Health Center. Family yeah. Health, we're, we're funded Section 330E of the Public Health Service Act. And I mean, that means everything, basically. But then there's Section 330H. Family Health Center has a Section 330E and a Section 330H for Homeless Health Center separate grant. So they have a Homeless Health Center. Um, we have patients who we do refer to them and we have other patients who don't fit the traditional definition of homeless. I mean, I kind of call them couch surfers. They don't have a stable residence. They don't have, you know, they may be living in one friend's house this week and next month they're somewhere else 
And then the month after that, they may be in their car. If their car got repossessed, they may be with someone else. So they're actually homeless, but they don't class, aren't classified as homeless. So we see those patients as well. Um, we also have patients who come from sober living facilities and halfway houses. We're the, I think we're the only center that sees the halfway house residents um, right now. Otherwise, they have to go to a hospital emergency room or urgent care center. Do you actually go to the halfway house or they come to you? They come to us. We Some of them have buses, so they'll bring them to us. Some of them have um, don't have buses. They'll ride the bu TARC bus or they'll walk if they're close enough. And if they don't have transportation, then our transportation vans will pick them up and bring them to us just like um, we would any other patient. Um, we do, we are in scope by the, that means the federal authorization tells us we can do cl clinical services offsite. So I could go to the halfway house. I could go to a subsidized housing area. We have done that at Family Scholar House, for example. You know, if they requested, we can figure out how to do that for them. But right now, they're mostly coming to us at one of our clinic sites. Can, can you uh, go, uh, go after grants and can you have fundraisers for your clinic? We, we, have, we have a lot of grant funding, okay? We don't do much in terms of fundraising. You know, I have an amazing board of directors. Fundraising is usually a board function. Um, and our, by federal law, 51% of my board of directors must be patients of our health center and must match them by race and demographic and the demographics of our patients. So it means that some of our board members are very accomplished and have, um, you know, a lot of authority in their positions outside of our health center. There are others who, who might be janitors or, you know, not have that kind of influence out in the world, but they're still our board members. So our board has never done very much fundraising. Most of our fundraising is done internally where my chief operating officer goes out and, and gets grants. Like we have a, a Humana Foundation grant for food insecurity. A lot of our patients come in, do not have food. And we would run around, everybody would scramble and try to give our part of our lunches or you know, give them a gift card to go across to the nearest store and get food. Well, now we have a food insecurity grant through Humana where we not only can give them gift cards, we can help them with nutrition counseling, which we always do anyway, but now we can actually give them a card to go buy food. Um, we have a, a affiliation with Dare to Care and Kroger. So Kroger brings a mobile van to us where patients can shop on a mobile van and they actually decrease their price. So it's cheaper to get food on the mobile van than it is if you go to a regular Kroger store. Um, we, we, we have grants, we have an Uber grant, for example. So if someone needs COVID testing or COVID vaccination, but they don't have transportation and they're maybe outside of the range of our small transportation fleet to come get them, then we can get them a ride through Uber free of charge because we have an Uber grant that does that. We have a, 
a grant by Jewish Heritage Foundation. Jewish Heritage Foundation helps fund our um, Central High School school-based site. And we're hoping that they will consider funding our PRP school-based site as well. Um, it is our intent to probably open, to try to open three additional school-based sites between now and, and September when school opens. So, uh, Anne, how about giving us a giving us a kind of an overview of, of of your governance and your staff or your management? You've told us a little bit about the the the, the governing board, but just kind of you know from from the from for for our listeners, give us kind of an overview of how 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 the the governing structure and an idea of the the different positions in the management staff that you've got. Okay. Um, we're a we're a five hundred one c three nonprofit, and so when you look at us, you'll we'll, our organization. Yeah, well, I don't I don't know what that means, and I bet most oh. of our, most of our oh. listeners don't, and I don't think Gene does either. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're 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 designated as a nonprofit organization that's not an educational organization. Okay, thank like, you. Um, like U of L is a nonprofit as well, right. but. Um, but they're an institution of education. We're a nonprofit where we can we can have reserves, we can have profits, we but we can't use that money to give anybody dividends or you know buy myself a fancy new car or a plane. We can, you know, <laughs> that money has to be poured back into our health center operations to improve or add or enhance quality of care or access to care. Um, so it has to be something, we have to do something with the, any monies we get as a nonprofit that enhances our mission. That's the way we think health insurance companies should be run instead of the way they're run today. But that's, that's another there issue are another time. trillions of dollars that could be used for health care if yes. we chose to structure our healthcare system differently in this country. I mean, our, I have a C-suite, so I have a chief operating officer that does the same thing a chief operating officer in the hospital would do. I have a chief financial officer that does the same thing a chief financial officer in a hospital would do, and they have additional accountants that report to them that do our accounting services. I have a human resources department. I have... Um, Department heads for each division. So behavioral health has a behavioral health coordinator. All of the unit areas like pediatrics and adults have a nursing nurse manager in charge. I have a director of nursing. I have a laboratory director, an assistant laboratory director. We have technicians. We have OBGYNs and women's health nurse practitioners. We have nurses. Um, so it's structured just like if you looked at a hospital and saw their structure, it would it would be very similar. Just we don't do any surgeries, of course, because we're primary care. Um, we don't have any inpatient care because we're primary care. And um, we can pick and choose how expansive we want the services to be if the federal government will approve it. Anything we do, though, in terms of governance structure, first the board of directors has, I have to present the case to them. They have to decide, yes, that's a good way to spend our federal dollars and the revenue that we make. 
And then I have to go to the federal government and say, yes, now our board said it's okay. Can we do this? So how there's nothing someone, I can do without federal approval. How does someone get on your board of directors? Is that something they can apply for? Is that, you know, is it a community's recommendations? Uh, what's that? How does that process work? Anyone can apply. Anyone who wants to be on our board can apply. Now, our board of directors is a maximum, a minimum of nine. That's a federal requirement. And, but our maximum is 15. It could be more than that, but that based on the bylaws that our board of directors um, approved, developed and approved, we can have between nine and 15 on our board. Right now I have 12. Um, we just, someone new came on because one of the board members knew someone from a bank who was working in um, with a nonprofit who had, was dealing with food insecurity. They wanted to know about our program. He heard about our program, he liked it. And we mentioned that, oh, we have a space on our board. Would you be interested in applying? He did. Um, I did a radio show at, on WLOU for another community group. And I talked about our board of directors being community members. And um, one of the people who was facilitating the show said, oh, can I get a board application? So we gave them one. And she's applying to be on our board as well. So I don't get to choose, but I can recommend names. Our board members can recommend names. Our staff can recommend people. But the rule is they cannot be related by blood, marriage, adoption, um, guardianship to anyone who works on our staff. But then if someone applies, uh, how, how do they get chosen? Who, 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 who decides? Or the board of directors decides. Okay. We have a board bylaws and nominations committee. So the nominations, they, we would, if someone get handed me an application um, in the building because they keep them at the front desk, they could hand me the application. I'd give the application to the bylaws and nominations committee chair. She would look at it and decide, does that person have skill sets or, or do we have a need to add someone to the board at that, top, that time? If she says yes, then the bylaws committee will interview the person. They'll call them in for an interview or do a virtual interview to find out why they wanna be on our board. And then once that happens, the whole board will vote at the next board meeting based on the bylaws and nominations committee's recommendation whether that person should be brought on to the board of directors. I, I was interested in your 340B uh, drug program. How long have you been doing that? And it's brought it, has it brought in a considerable amount of money? Okay, the 340B pharmacy is a very large revenue stream for us. Um, it was structured that way for federally qualified health centers. Um, so we can get medications for pennies on the dollar and then we pass that savings on to our patients, but we can also um, be reimbursed at the retail cost for that medication. Um, HRSA, the federal funding agency that funds all of the federally qualified health centers in the United States, is through HHS, through HRSA, Health Resources and Services Administration, and then through the Bureau of Primary Health Care. That's our, our upstream um, funding through the federal government. Um, they structured it that way because they know that if they tell us as firmly qualified, we have to see everybody regardless of ability to pay, 
there's no way we can provide transportation services and social services and um, enabling services and all of the clinical services we provide, including lab and x-ray and pharmacy and medical care, um, and only charge $20 for a visit. There's no way to fund that using um, just the revenues that we can get directly from patient care. So it's funded so that we get an enhanced PPS rate for Medicaid patients and we can bill our paper pharmaceuticals at low cost and bill for it at the retail cost if they're insured. Aside from uh, providing these various uh, care services, do you do outreach, uh, any outreach programs with the community, uh, health uh, awareness, uh, prevention, things like that? We, we haven't been doing very many right now. You know, during COVID, it, it curtailed a lot of things, but, yes, you know, we have individuals who will go and be speakers um, for community groups or churches. We'll talk to um, groups that want to know more about Park Duval. If someone says, I need a speaker to come talk about um, nutrition, then we can send one of our dietitians or nutritionists um, we have a WIC office. We have one of the two freestanding WIC offices in Jefferson County. So we have nutritionists. I have a population health team and a population health manager that, that not only counsels individual patients and their families about nutrition and diet and exercise, but if someone requested, we'll go out and we will talk to them about um, any healthcare issue they would like to discuss. We presented at schools when sometimes schools want to know about, they say, can we talk about contraceptives or STDs with high school students? Yes, we can do that. Um, you know, we can do HIV AIDS education. We have, you know, a variety of different types of services. So if anybody wants to know more about that, we'll take it to you. I have a lot of presentations that are just PowerPoints that I can just give to someone and say, hi, would you would you go present at this location at this time and place? Um, it's fun, it's different for staff. It gets them out of the, the exam room and into the community. Um, we have outreach and enrollment workers who will go out and talk to people about how to get insured and help them get insured. Um, we have, um, who did I leave out? I'll leave somebody out. Well, do you have uh, cancer prevention or anti-smoking programs that, that you uh, provide to the community? We, we used to have smoking cessation programs on, on site. In fact, we got an award once for having the, um, the, one of the best smoking cessation programs with, with less recidivism than most of the other ones. But now our patients who are smokers um, get referred to the stop smoking program through the health department because I don't have anybody on staff any longer who's certified to be a, a smoking cessation trainer. Um, I do have um, individuals who can do nutrition counseling and things like that, but not smoking cessation. I don't have anyone who is doing a lot of other, well, I do have someone who's here coming here actually doing cooking classes to help people learn how to cook health with, you know, fresh foods and healthy meals 
that aren't high in fat and lots of fried food, but um, we don't have as much of that going on during our corona life as we used to have. Uh, do, do you, um, how many doctors do you have and nurse practitioners? I don't have a lot of doctors. Um, I just hired a new pediatrician. I have, right now I have two pediatricians. I have one OBGYN. I have one, two, three family medicine physicians. And that's it. All, one, two, three, four, five dentists. I think we have about 23 nurse practitioners. I'd have to double check the number. Um, physicians are a much small, and are, we have a one, two, three physicians in our adult clinic here at the main site. Um, two of them are part-time, one of them is full-time. We have two full-time pediatricians. I have one full-time OBGYN. Um, I have one volunteer cardiologist and he only comes in once a month. Um, and he is a volunteer, so he isn't getting paid to do this. And those are all of, and then we have dentists. And I have three dentists at the main site, one dentist at each of our satellite sites, except for Henry County, does not have a dentist at all. And that's why the mobile dental van goes there. So um, we're a little light on terms of MDs and DMDs, but um, one of the things we're trying to do with the COVID American Rescue Plan Act funds that we received is hire at least three or four more physicians. Um, our board would be is very interested in us becoming possibly a teaching health center, but we have not been able to do that because we don't have enough MDs um, that are full time in order to be able to participate in that federal program. So could UofL help you with that? Um, it's, that's not something that we've been able to get much help from U of L with. I mean, we do have three University of Louisville um, psychiatric residents. Um, the, one of the challenges for us, especially with recruiting MDs, is that we're competing in the same applicant pool as U of L Hospital, Baptist Hospital, Norton's Hospital. You know, we're, we're, we're competing for the exact same population. So we have a program that called National Health Service Corps, which is a federal program where anyone, any physician or dentist or nurse practitioner who comes to work for us can apply um, for that program. We can't guarantee it. And based on our health profession shortage area scores, they might get approved and then if they work for us for four or five years, they get a full-time salary and all of their student loan debt is, is eliminated. And we have done that. We go through, we also participate in the state um, loan repayment program where the state pays part and we pay part of the loans off, student loans off for MDs. However, what often happens is, you know, they'll stay three, four, five years, they'll get their debt repaid or, or eliminated, and then they might go and work at one of the hospitals, the hospital might pay them for three days worth of work, the same amount that I can pay for a full week's worth of work. 
What about using uh, retired physicians who could work part-time? Um, actually, I have one, two, three retired physicians right now. Most of our physicians that I have are were retirees um, in pediatrics and in adult clinic, and or they were more seasoned physicians. Um, I, I the new pediatrician I have is is younger. She worked for us when she first finished her residency in the late '90s, and then she's come back now to work for us full time. Um, I have a physician who's, you know, probably in her forties who works for us part-time, but it's a little challenging for us to find physician staff. Um, one of the challenges I had was some of our a more seasoned physician was that they found our electronic health record system that we used to be challenging to use. Also, as a federally qualified health center, we have an enormous amount of documentation that is required by the federal government in terms of clinical performance measures. And it's, it's, it's hard to do, it's hard work. It really is not easy. Um, we are a national quality leader as judged by HRSA, benchmarked against all the other 1400 health centers with probably over 12,000 clinics, but we have, um, we're in the top one to 2% 2 in terms of quality in the United States and all the US territories in terms based on our patient outcomes um, for diabetes. For all other clinical measures, we're in the top 30% of all health centers in the United States and the US territories. But doing that means there's a lot of extra work you have to do in documentation that you have to do as a clinical provider in order us to achieve those kind of um, that kind of recognition. And let me make a quick comment about electronic health records, and then I'm going to ask you a question oh, about no. Let's don't get on the that. services. Before I retired from the surgery department, uh, they did a, a quality of life survey of the surgical residents in the Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. It was a couple of years ago. And the, the most frequent uh, negative, and these are all the young ones, mm -hmm. these are the residents, the most frequent negative that was mentioned by almost all of the surgical residents was the, the amount of time, the complexity, and, and the essentially the harassment of having to go through this repeated uh, documentation over and over and over again is a nightmare from hell. So yes. it's just an old cranky, old cranky surgeon complaining about this. <laughs> so don't be too hard on those people when, when they're unhappy with those damn things. Oh, no, now, I'm not happy with them either. Yeah. But, but it's required. I mean, we can't get if we don't use a certified electronic health record system, we can't get paid for Medicaid or Medicare. I, I know so, that in, in so this country, in we this have to use it. Yes. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes it. Well, in other countries, it's not as complicated because it's focused more on health care and less on billing. You think, yes. Yes. I mean, if, I mean if a health center of my size, my budget is not big. I mean, it's about 15 million, you know, 15 to 18 million. It varies, but it's, um, 
you know, we do about four million, four and a half million of uncompensated care means we're really operating on a shoestring when you think about how much difference that makes. Yeah. But then we've got all of this record keeping we have to do with electronic health records. And then for billing, I mean, I, we, we accept almost every insurance plan. So for a center of my size, I mean, it, it costs me almost $400,000 a year just for billing staff to maintain <laughs> all the billing and to get everybody credentialed, which takes forever too, with all the different insurance companies. Okay, we're getting close to the end here. Let me ask you a quick question about, we earlier on, we went through a list of services that you provided, mentioned addiction. How does that fit into your, your overall uh, scheme of activities? And uh, like I said, we're getting, we've got about five minutes left, so we're gonna be, we're going to be ending this soon. Our, first of all, we, we're required by federal law as a FQHC to do um, a screening of every patient at least once a year called SBIRT, screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. Um, we also do depression screening. We have all these different things we have to do. But um, that was one of the ones to see if people might be at risk for substance use disorder. If they are, then we have embedded licensed clinical social workers can do a brief intervention and then get them into our behavioral health department where our psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners or um, in this case psychiatry residents or their attendants from UofL can maybe do some medication assistance, MET, MAT, medically assisted therapy. Um, we don't have a grant for that mainly because I don't have enough staff to really um, accommodate as many people as may need the services, but um, we do provide some substance use disorder treatment and therapy through our behavioral health department. Let me ask you another quick question as a follow-up on, on the question that Jean had asked you earlier about how, uh, about your, your views about, you know, the best option for healthcare in this country. Just suppose that we, uh, either had a public option added to the Affordable Care Act or had Medicare for all, which is, you, you know, this is, uh, this is one of the sponsoring uh, uh, missions of, of our, our, our purposes for doing the program. How, how would that change your activities if we had Medicare for all uh, with, and, you know, assuming presumably Medicaid, uh, all of the issues of the thousand for-profit insurance companies, we're all having 40 or 50 different plans, which isn't probably as much of an issue for you as it is for some others. <laughs> but tell me how your, your daily activities might be different and I, this may or may not be a fair question because you're going to have to sort of think about how things might be instead of the realities that you deal with every day. You know, but if, if you look at other countries that have um, universal health care, um, first of all, in the United States, we have, um, we have a deficit in terms of numbers of primary care physicians and primary care practices. A lot of individuals are going into specialty practices because I mean, it, it obviously, you know, medical school is expensive and it does pay more and, they, and that's where their interest lies. But if everyone in the United States suddenly had access to um, health insurance through a universal plan, they'd have to have, first of all, somewhere to go. 
Um, and so we believe that federally qualified health centers, not just us, but all, are part of the solution because we have years of experience in providing high quality primary care services and wrapping around the, um, the additional services that patients may need who are low income. Um, I, I think people look at it and say, well, gee, if everybody has insurance, all the, the problems go away. The problems never go away. They have insurance, they have to know how to use it. So someone has to help teach them that. They have insurance, they have to use it when they need it and have access to it, not just convenient for us, but when it's convenient for them as well. Um, they would have to, when our patients come in, I tell our staff, you can't just give them a pill and send them home because they, the social determinants of health are real. So our patients come in with issues that are outside of the direct scope of healthcare, but which we will still need to provide them um, additional supports. And uh, we're, we're down to the line here. I want to thank you again. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You, you are very, it's been informative and fun. We want to thank you again. Uh, Mark's going to make a few final, uh, final remarks and then we're, we're done. Okay. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Again, for more information about the Park Duval Community Health Center, you can go to, and help me out here, parkduval.org. Park yep, www.pdchc for Park Duval Community Health Center.org. Or we, all of our sites have Facebook pages of their own, so follow us on Facebook. We also have Instagram and Twitter, so you, know, you can tweet to us too. So, um, we have millennials in my IT department, so we, we're, we're tech savvy and do all the social media. Okay, good deal. Thank you so much. Again, for folks who want to learn more about Kentuckians for single-payer health care, you can go to kyhealthcare.org. And you can go to that website, kyhealthcare.org, to learn about the rally in March for Improved Medicare for All. That's Saturday, July 24th at 11 a.m. And again, I uh, want to thank our listeners. This uh, radio station, WFMPLP, forwardradio.org, is an all-volunteer radio station please contact us at forwardradio.org if you'd like to volunteer or donate. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you.